I would put this on a mix. You put help on a mix? I would put this on a mix. A mix of shitty covers? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, 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 and welcome everyone to another week of 1001 Album Complaints. This is the podcast where lifelong friends, musicians, and people who just complain about the dumbest shit in the world get together to talk about albums from Robert Dimer's list of 1001 albums you must be here before you die. We will give our in-depth opinions, our breakdowns of individual tracks, backgrounds on the artist, and then at the end vote and tell you whether or not you really do need to hear this album before you die after that we will randomly select the next album that we will be dissecting my name is tom i've been a musician for longer than i can even care to count and i am very excited to talk about this week's album which is the album private dancer by tina turner before we get into any of our deep dives and our quick tweet-length reviews of the album, we are going to play a quick snippet of what was the biggest single off this album and, spoiler alert, the biggest single of Tina Turner's career, What's Love Got to Do With It? You must understand the touch of your hand makes my folks react That it's only the thrill of boy-meeting girl opposites attract It's physical Only logical You must try to ignore that it means more than Alrighty, so now that you are familiar with that song, I would imagine most people have probably heard it before. It was a huge hit, very ubiquitous in the 80s. We are going to throw it around the room, introduce our guests by way of a quick tweet-length review, and very happy this week to be able to throw it over to Marty. Hey, hey, this is Marty. My tweet-length review is going to be a little bit painful. I made it after I listened to the these songs one time through, before I did a deeper dive, so... Here we go. Tina Turner did what we all wish we could. Land a hit album in our mid-40s. Turns out, (laughs) all you need is a catchy name, a Casio keyboard with six built-in song patterns, and the talent to butcher covers of two of the most perfectly executed songs ever produced. I'd rather have cancer that listened to Private Dancer. Oh, Jesus, wow. Marty. Ouch. I, Coming in I'm, hot. Yeah, I'm really, I'm curious as what your vote's going to be at the end. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's, let's hear from Rob. Maybe we'll get a little bit more positivity here. <laughs> Listen, y'all. Two men enter, one man leaves. <laughs> These aren't just the rules of the Thunderdome. They apply to me coming into this Tina Turner podcast. Do I embrace the 80s cheese or do I insist 
on killing off the part of me that really, really enjoyed this. <laughs> All right. And I am Tom. Uh, I will be leading us through our journey into this album today. My tweet length review is, how is it that in the mid-1980s, Quite possibly the cokiest era that has ever coked, an aging rock star known for her intense, stimulant-fueled, raucous live show puts out a remarkably subdued album and finds almost universal success and acclaim. I do not understand it. (laughs) Doesn't mean I didn't like it, but I don't understand it at all. So, this is the album, as we said, Private Dancer, released May 29th, 1984, by Capitol Records from one tina turner can i just interrupt right now and say that i can't remember a podcast episode where i was more curious to hear everyone's opinions on this after having listened to this record in isolation all week having a variety of motions emotions occur to me secondhand and otherwise i i'm just genuinely curious as to how this this conversation is gonna go it's it's gonna be an interesting ride i gotta say Honestly, speaking of interesting rides, let's talk about Tina Turner's life leading up to this album for a second, because I do think that there is a lot of context that needs to be put into why this album was such a big deal and such a big thing. So, born Anna Mae Bullock, September 26, 1939, born in Brownsville, Tennessee, which even in 2020 had less than 10,000 people. She didn't even actually live in Brownsville, Tennessee. She lived in Nutbush, Tennessee, which yeah. yeah, to this day is like four buildings and a stop sign. It is the middle of goddamn nowhere. In 1939, she was born there, youngest of three kids born to Zelma and Floyd Bullock. And now let's just get a little context of like what life was like in Nutbush, Tennessee in 1939, the job that her dad had was he was the overseer of a collection of sharecroppers in the area. Jeez. Can I just say also, just since you mentioned Nutbush, that it was only this week I realized that Nutbush City Limits was originally a Tina Turner tune. I know it from Live Bullet. It's the first track on Live Bullet. Bob Seger does an amazing version of it, by the way. Hell fucking yeah. All right, so she's got two siblings, two two other sisters. Her older sister, Ruby Bullock, is actually a songwriter. She wrote several songs for her and for Ike and Tina at the time. She basically goes to live with her grandparents for a while when she's very young because her parent. It's like, this is, again, this is talking about the poverty that they grew up in. Her parents both moved away during World War II to go get jobs at a factory to, like, make some money. And they were just like, I just live with your grandparents. Like, who gives a shit, basically? So for several years, they live with their grandparents. They eventually go back, move in with their parents again. At the age of 11, her mother runs off to escape the incredibly abusive relationship that she has with her father. Dun, dun, dun. We call this foreshadowing in the podcast (laughs) biz here. (laughs) So then when she's 16, her grandmother dies. She moves to St. Louis to live with her mother. Now, this ends up being like a very momentous decision in her life and actually kind of changes a lot of the course of sort of rock and roll popular music because it is in the St. Louis nightclub scene in 1957 that she meets one Ike Turner, a name that everyone has heard before, has come up on this podcast, actually relatively recently came up on the podcast in relation to his relationship with Sam Cooke. And you really can't talk about Tina Turner without talking about Ike Turner. Because again, her name is not Tina Turner. Her name is Anna Bullock. 
And so at the time, Anna Bullock, she's 18 years old. She's living in St. Louis. She meets Ike Turner. Ike is an early pioneer of rock and roll. Rocket 88, it's one of the songs that is held up as potentially one of the earliest rock and roll songs. Actually, it was written by Ike Turner. He did not get credit for writing it. It's credited to Jack Breston and his Delta Cats. But Jack Breston was just the sax player in the Kings of Rhythm, which was Ike Turner's band. And they changed the name of the artist to basically be able to market it better because it was supposed to be a Kings of Rhythm song. And they're like, no, 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 no. You're not the Kings of Rhythm. You're you're Jackie Breston and his Delta Cats. And Ike Turner's like, what the fuck, man? Like, this is my song. I wrote this song. It's my band. Some people say it's the first rock and roll song partly because it was the first uh, song, I believe, that used fuzz bass. Like, I don't know if they had just, like, busted the bass speaker or something, but it was... It's remarkably easy to bust the bass speaker, by the way. Right, exactly. <laughs> it was, so it had it had distortion on it in a way that that was significant, you could argue. So that's, that's, that's the, the defining moment of rock and roll is when the bass gets fuzzy. Well, that's what that's what some people say. There are, there are a few other songs like that in the canon, but that's the reason for it. It's essentially the introduction of distortion into music, right? Which, you know, as we all know, has become a huge hallmark of rock sure. and roll music. So yeah, Ike is the band leader of this band, The Kings of Rhythm. There are they're a relatively successful band. He's a successful songwriter, and they are playing in the St. Louis scene. And by all accounts, it sounds like Anna goes to see him at a show and just is immediately infatuated with him, and begs him to let her sing. And it's just like, can you can I please sing your band? Can I please sing your band? And he, by all accounts, is like, yeah, fuck off. I don't care. The story goes basically one night she's at a show of his and wrestles the microphone away from the drummer during an intermission and gets up on stage. Which just picture this in your head. Like as a person in a band, if you're just like playing and some random chick just comes up and is like, give me the microphone. I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, it's like, why, why, do you, why do you give the drummer the mic to begin with? You know? Exactly. Yeah, well, idea. I mean, probably everybody was singing in this band. There's a lot of, a lot of singing going on in that band. So she wrestles the mic away. She sings this B.B. King ballad, You Know I Love You. And the crowd likes it. And Ike is like, oh, shit. Like, do you know anything else? She sits in with them for the rest of the session and... Basically, history is made from that point on. Ike and Tina become a sort of uh, an item. They, they they don't date at first. They were platonic friends at first because he was with he was with another woman at the time. But they start working together. She's a featured singer in his band. Well, he he's like I mean he's a piece of shit. I think in many regards, but he's also known as an innovator and a sort of an orchestrator, right? So he builds like a show around her realizing that she's a talent, right? Well, he's the band, he's a band leader. He's not a front man. He's a band leader. Like Count Basie style. He's like, I'm actually doing probably the least complex thing of anybody on stage, but I'm the one who orchestrates everything. I'm the guy pulling on the strings. Yeah, he's got that kind it's of the Lorne Michaels type. Sure, absolutely. Basically, they're, they're, they're playing together. And then like a fateful day in 1960, Ike has booked the studio to record this song that he has written for Art Lasseter, and Art just doesn't show up, and he's, Tina's like, you got the studio booked already, you already paid for it, why don't you let me sing the song? And he's like, yeah, sure, you can sing it, and his plan is, I'm going to have Art Lasseter re-record these vocals, and we're just going to edit you out. But one of his friends hears it and is like, hey, like this, this is actually pretty fucking good, you should totally try to see what you can do with this. He ends up sending it over to this Sue Records and the president, a guy named Juggy Murray, which is a great name. <laughs> <laughs> so Juggy Murray hears it and he's like, 
Not only does he love it, he advances Ike $25,000 for the rights to this song, which, by the way, adjusted for inflation, is $250,000 fucking dollars Ooh. in oh. today's money. So somebody cuts him a quarter of a million dollar check. And, and what is this tune? It's called A Fool in Love. I, I kind of want to rescind my Lorne Michaels comment, because I meant that as a compliment, because Lorne Michaels is such a person who can find talent and grow talent. But the fact that now you're telling me Ike Turner actually even heard Tina Turner sing the tune and was like, still, nah. And oh, he yeah. had to be convinced, right? So maybe he's not so good. Not only had to be convinced, but Juggy Murray, when he gave him the $25,000, was like, I'm giving you this money, but you have to build the band around Tina. Tina's the star. Anna. Anna Bullock is the star. That's the star. And he's sort of like, okay, well. He says, all right, we'll do it, but I'm coming up with a stage name and a persona for you. And that is where Tina Turner comes from. He picked Tina because it rhymed with Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, who was a like popular comic book character at the time that he was like basing the stage persona on. And he picked Turner because he's a gigantic fucking asshole. And he basically said, I'm coming up with this persona, Tina Turner. And I have copyrighted the name and I own the rights to it. So if you ever leave me, I'm just going to replace you with another Tina Turner. Whoa. Yeah. Total just like Lord Michaels. Move. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, apparently right after they recorded A Fool in Love, Tina Turner said basically like, I don't know if I want to be together with you anymore, like in a relationship. And then he beats the living fuck out of her and um, hits her over the head with like a wooden shoe stretcher and like beats the shit out of her. And so it's very, very fucking controlling in that. It's not a great relationship and we'll dive more into that. But A Fool in Love ends up being a hit. Mainstream audience, it reaches number 27 on the Billboard Hot 100, which at the time for like a black artist to have the like not just R&B 100, but like the Hot 100, that was a big deal. And this basically kicks off a decade of just immense popularity and a lot of output from the Ike and Tina Turner Review is what they put together. What, what, what year was that again, Tom, that that came out? 1960. Oh, damn. Yeah, that is quite early. So yeah, 1960, that comes out, and that's a hit for them. And basically, like, the next decade for them is just fucking hits after hits after hits. They're producing singles. They're getting courted by record labels. They work with Phil Spector. They're winning Grammys. They are crushing it on the Chitlin circuit. And also because they have such popularity and such draw, they're able to play in some of these, not white-only venues, but venues that are traditionally only gone to by white people, which is where, as we said before, this real money was in that. They are considered a legitimate rival to the James Brown live shows of the day. Like they, it's like Ike wow. and Tina Turner and James Brown. Those are the two people that you got to go see live, which that's a pretty big fucking compliment. Cause James yeah. Brown, James oh, Brown yeah. is killing. It. I mean, you watch Tina in those old videos, like she's moving. It's, you can see it's electric for sure. Oh yeah. And, and at what point, it must have been at least eight years, eight or so years later, that Proud Mary comes out? Do you have that on the timeline? A couple things happen before Proud Mary comes out. So in 68, they get a residency in Vegas, very early, like Vegas residency. And it is one of those, like, it's the who's who of everybody comes to go see them in Vegas during this residency. David Bowie. Ray Charles, Elton John, Elvis Presley, Janis Joplin, Sly Stone, all these people are coming to see them play 
at their Vegas residency. And then in 1969, they open up for the Rolling Stones for their American tour. That's a good fucking get. That's a good get for, a, you know, a, a, an artist at the time. And then 1971 rolls around. And that is when they release Proud Mary. Cover of the Creedence Clearwater Revival song. As we, you know, I say we all know. I'm assuming everybody of our listeners has already heard the Tina Turner version of Proud Mary. But just in case you haven't, let's just drop that in right here so you can get an idea of what they actually put out there and the way that they interpret the song, which I think is pretty fucking great. Rolling on a river. The I was going to say, this is how I knew Tina Turner growing up, this song. And in fact, I want to say that I thought, I want to say that I, this version of Proud Mary got to me before the Creedence version, or, you know, maybe it was because it was paired with videos of them singing it or something like that, even in the MTV era, I'm not sure. But it gives you a little clue of, given how much success they had with reinventing this song, and it is really a reinvention from the Creedence version of the tune, Maybe it's an indication of why she takes on so many covers on Private Dancer, right? Well, absolutely. She's not a songwriter. She never really has been much of a songwriter. She has mostly been a performer and been a, a vocalist. And, you know, there, there actually is, Rob, a famous story that goes along with uh, your idea that Tina Turner was the person who sang Proud Mary, is that very famously John Fogarty did not have control of his catalog. He was in a bitter fight with our members of... Credence Clearwater Revival, because they said, basically, hey, we all wrote the songs, even though John Fogarty wrote all the fucking songs. And even though his brother was a member of the band, still it was a very, very bitter fight. And there's a famous story where Tom Petty and John Fogarty are at a bar, and Tom Petty gets up and plays a couple of Tom Petty songs, and the crowd goes fucking nuts. And he sits back down, and he goes, hey, John, like, you should get up and play some songs. And John's like, I can't. I don't have the rights to the songs. And he goes, John, if you don't get up and play, everyone's going to think Proud Mary is a Tina Turner song. And he goes, ah, <laughs> fuck. And he gets up and plays, and then that kicks off this, like, lawsuit era where he's trying to sue to get the rights to his songs back. Um, but, like, that's the jab that Tom Petty gave him. He's like, they're going to think it's a Tina Turner song. Like that's, a, like, that's a huge diss or something like that, but, you know. Yeah, I hear what you're saying about her not being a songwriter, but there's also, there's a version of a non-songwriter who just solicits songs from other songwriters. The fact that she is taking on... Things that were already hits to me is like a very specific career direction. Let me put it that way. Yeah. No, I, I could agree with you on that. And um, done to a varying degrees of success on this album. Agreed. Uh, Agreed. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny because cause I, I kind of had to reframe her in my mind as as because I, I didn't know a lot about her. I was actually wasn't even sure if she was still alive or not. Uh, before listening to this album, but just but, barely is apparently the answer. Sure, sure. Uh, but I, I had to think of her less of uh, as like a you know an Elton John or Billy Joel type, and more of like a Frank Sinatra type, where where her talent is her performance and her singing ability, 
and it doesn't matter if she's writing her own songs or not. Very, yeah, sure. she's very much a delivery woman, just like you know, like a Dean Martin, sure. or like a Frank Frank Sinatra. You're right. Like, and, and before we get into complaining about this record and and alternately praising it, can we just say that her voice to me is fucking great? Oh, there's, there's a couple things. Her voice is great, and I I watched an interview with her from the '80s, and it's like she talks about working out all the time. Like that's what her thing. Like she's on some like Dutch interview thing she's like yeah she's like i just like work out all the time she's like my whole life is like health and working out and you know and it's like okay i, I it kind of starts making a little bit more sense you know being that she was in her mid-40s when she made you know recorded this album and how like vibrant and kind of sexy she was at 44 yeah it's kind of, it's kind of amazing that she still oozes this rock star vibe and i like i'll give it to you i don't like many of the songs on this album, but there are definitely ones where she gives this vibe where I'm just like, holy shit, I want to fucking see you perform. Like, I want to see you do this live. You're you're still a rock star. You still got it. Basically, like, 1971 is Proud Mary comes out. It's their biggest hit as the Ike and Tina Turner review. But, you know, there are some stirrings of issues in the background. Apparently, Ike Turner is uh, abusing cocaine more and more during this time. No. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> and he's becoming increasingly abusive. Like, he is beating the shit out of her. To the point where in 1968, she actually tr- attempted suicide because she was just felt, like, super trapped in this life. Think about it from this standpoint. She's not a songwriter, so she doesn't get a whole lot of royalty credits coming from these songs. He owns her name. Like, he owns the name of Tina Turner. He's he's married to her. They have children together. She has adopted two of his children, and he's mm. beaten the shit out of her. He's apparently bipolar. He was diagnosed later in life with being bipolar. And so, like, you're like a bipolar, abusive, cocaine addict husband. That's pretty fucking rough. Ike said in his autobiography where he was attempting to clear his name. This was his attempt to clear his name. He said, sure, I slapped Tina. We had fights, and there were times where I punched her to the ground without thinking, but I never beat her. I mean, it kind of sounds like you fucking beat her. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I slapped her, but I never beat her. I slapped her. I punched her. I knocked her down, but I never beat her. Never hit. No body shots. Yeah, exactly. Once she was down, I was like, all right, we're good. You know, like, I've knocked you to the ground. I'm not fucking following up with my grounded pound action. But yeah, not cool, Like, Not fucking cool. So things continue on until 1976 and there is an incident in 1976 where they're on tour it's like kind of the beginning of a tour they're on their way to a hotel in dallas and apparently he just starts beating the living fuck out of her and she just runs away and she said she literally had like 36 cents and a credit card and that's it the clothes in her back and just ran away and was like i cannot do this anymore i think he's gonna kill me at some point and files for divorce, and it becomes kind of an acrimonious divorce. They cancel all of the dates on the tour after that. And this that actually plays really into a lot of the context for Private Dancer, the album, because in their divorce, he ends up keeping all of the publishing rights for their songs. Anything she wrote, she gets songwriting credits for it, but he still has publishing rights, even for the songs that she wrote, and she takes on all of the liability for the canceled tour dates. 
And so she is basically getting sued out of her fucking ass. Like immediately in 1976, she starts hemorrhaging money. You mean by a bunch of different promoters? A bunch of different promoters for canceling shows that they sold tickets to, they booked vendors for, they have lighting and you know all the other shit. Probably getting sued by the roadies and all the other people that would have had a job working for her show. So she has this huge liability hanging out there. And she needs money right away. And the only way that she's going to get money right away is by turning herself into a fucking, like, nostalgia novelty act. Basically, from day one, she starts doing, like, the cheesiest of the cheese fucking nostalgia novelty act shit. Because she needs to get booked right away, and she needs to make money. And it gets down to the point where, Rob, you and I have had experience with this. Marty, you've probably had experience with this, too, where she's playing, like, fucking hotel ballrooms. It's like when we saw Yes at the Silver Legacy in Reno, and they were playing in the basement of a fucking casino. It's sure. like those kind oh, of Oh, oh, yeah. You mean like seeing it, not being it. Of course, yeah. I've seen like, yeah, I've, yeah. You know, yeah I saw Steve Howe play solo, and he stopped in the middle of a song. And restarted yeah. it. <laughs> and like all like all 128 people were like, come on, Steve. You know, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. She's literally playing in hotel ballrooms. One of the places that she got like somebody gave her like a, a shot at doing, I think it was like maybe Rod Stewart saw her at the Fairmont in San Francisco. That's not a big hotel. There's not a big fucking arena there. She's playing in like a ballroom style shit. She starts doing just these down market shit gigs. And everybody thinks she's a joke. Nobody's taking her seriously anymore. Does that mean she can't play the old stuff that they used to play in the 60s? Or she can? Or do you know? I I don't know if it's... She can play some of that stuff, but it's not the Ike and Tina Turner review. Right. And she doesn't have any solo artist cred at this point. Actually, here's a separate tangential thing, because you mentioned they went to Vegas, what was it, in the early 70s? It was like 68 or something like that. 68, and it was a place... It was considered a good gig to do a Vegas residency at that time, right? That wouldn't have been too long after or around the time that Elvis was also having his comeback yeah, in totally, Vegas. Totally. But then like at some point later, don't know where the line is, a Vegas residency becomes where performers go to die. I think that's probably the 80s when a lot of, you know, it's like fucking you're like up against David Copperfield. And like, right. Yeah. But I'm saying, but it's funny how it goes in and out because now it's kind of come back. I feel like now, I don't know, Britney Spears did a residency there. I feel like a bunch of artists are doing residencies. It's considered normal. I, I think it's both, actually. I think I think it's always been both. No, I was going to say it's considered normal. But like, when the fuck is the last time Britney Spears put out any new material? It is where an artist goes to milk their fucking career at this point. There you point, go. Yeah, basically. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, right. fair enough. Yeah, like like Dave yeah. Dave Chappelle will go in Vegas just when he wants to like make a couple million. You know, if he hasn't toured, you can go there once for a month and make two years' salary. You know. Yeah, it's the one place you can play to different crowds every night without leaving your house. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm sure there's some fucking appeal to that because being a road dog sounds kind of brutal. And she was a road dog for a very long time, including during this time. She's going to Italy and like doing shit on Italian television. She's doing shit on like Hollywood squares and stuff like that. It is not. These are not good gigs. Man, Hollywood square is the bottom of the barrel. (laughs) It's pretty bottom of the barrel, right? So she goes from fucking Proud Mary in 1971 to the time you get to the early 80s. She's a fucking joke. Like nobody thinks that she has any legs left (laughs) in her career. Eventually, she, for some reason, records a cover of Al Green's Let's Stay Together. 
because she can still pull studio musicians and stuff like that, you know? So she puts this cover out of Al Green's Let's Stay Together, and it's actually like a sleeper dance hit out of nowhere. Just, it's getting played in fucking clubs and shit, and people are like, oh, this is pretty great. And this fucking guy, John Carter from Capitol Records, is like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you a star again. I'm gonna give you another opportunity he signs her to Capitol records and he greens green lights a full album from her which nobody wanted to touch her she'd put out a couple of solo albums during that time which did fucking abysmally nobody gave a shit about them at all and for some reason this guy john carter to the like chagrin of Capitol records who was like this is a career ending move for you what the fuck are you doing he's like no 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 i'm gonna make this work tina turner she still got it at 44 fucking years old, she still got it. We're gonna make her. We're gonna make it happen, and gives her the green light to record a full length album, and uh, that album ends up being this album, Private Dancer. It is recorded over the course of like two weeks in four different locations, and so that's one thing that you're gonna notice on this album. It's a little schizophrenic. There's like four different recording and engineering and producing crews that like take a shot at this album. And they put this album together, and it is released in 1984, May 29th. Tina Turner's 44 years old. That brings us up to where our week started, listening to this album. Now, I want to hear some general impressions from you guys on what your week was like and what you thought about this album. Look. It was better than I expected, but my expectations were very low. But I think that the main thing that's going to drive a lot of the complaints, I imagine for all of us, is how terribly the decade of the 1980s fucked up music. <laughs> the tones that are just being used here, the, the production choices in many cases are just abhorrent to modern ears. It's so soaked in 80s. There will be many specific examples, but amidst that, it was better than I expected through a combination of her voice. You know, she really brings it vocally, I thought, to most of the songs. I liked at least one of her cover interpretations, and and a couple of the songs just grew on me as like guilty pleasure <laughs> torch songs, frankly. You know, Rob, there's a thing. I, I know you've experienced this in, like, you know, martial arts where they have you do sparring. And, like, one of the first things they do is they, like, have you get hit in the face just so that you can be like, oh, that's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> that's kind of what this album was like. I was just like, yeah. oh, you know what? Like, I thought getting punched in the face was going to hurt a lot more than it did. It, it doesn't hurt all that bad. Yeah. I would say each individual track was a little bit of a journey, but, we'll, yeah, we can get into yeah, it as we go. Enough. I would say my take is kind of like this is kind of the beginning of like a engineering an album as like a money grab mm. where 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 you kind of put together people you get all these different people to invest and write songs and get a great singer and put it all together and package it up as something that can hit the charts have some music videos and make some fucking cashola a lot of a lot of like the you know the songs that aren't covers are very like lyrically just complete bores and a lot of even just like the songs and the music themselves it's just kind of just and we'll get into it but just kind of just doesn't do it for me it, did this happen to hit 
at a time when I feel like the public, the music listening public, was very willing to give aging rock stars another try. Because just in the month that this album was released, two of the number one songs were by Phil Collins and Lionel mm. Richie. <laughs> so both guys that had like previous music careers and were coming out to like, you know, oh yeah, this is like... Yeah, no, trust me, he's doing a new thing. It's going to be great. And frankly, like, some of that Lionel Richie stuff ain't bad. That's some of that Phil Collins stuff ain't bad either. I, I saw an interview with Tina Turner talking about Phil Collins and, and, and how, you know, this Dutch interviewer was like, I, I, heard, I heard you met with Phil Collins. And she's like, yeah, Phil Collins is an amazing songwriter. He wants to write a song for me, but that never works for me. I want him to write a song for him and then give it to me. <laughs> I want him to make it a hit first and then I'll just <laughs> right, drift right, on right, that. Right, yeah. yeah. So honestly, speaking of hits, let's run the numbers on this album for just a second. This album sold 12 million copies worldwide. 12 times platinum worldwide. Five times platinum in the US, 12 million copies sold total. It was in the Billboard Top 10 for 39 consecutive weeks. What's Love Got to Do With It? One, record of the year for the single version of it. Beating out Girls Just Want to Have Fun, uh, The Heart mistake. of Rock and Roll. Much better song. And Dancing in the Dark. What? <laughs> yes, bullshit. I know. Yeah, Forget it. My whole opinion's get changed now. Rigged, rigged, fake news. Get it won Song of the Year, beating out Time After Time, and I just called to say I love you. Mm. Also won best female pop vocalist and best female rock vocalist for Better Be Good to Me. Four Grammys out of six nominations. Tina Turner has sold over 100 million albums in her lifetime. That's just a sick amount of albums. That's so many fucking albums. If she wait, got wait, a dollar 100 an million, album, yes. and that's mostly. How many are this? How many of this sell? This is 12 million. God. Yes. Darn it. I know. She sold a lot of albums. She really is. I mean, honestly, like, I cannot express to you how blown away I was by these numbers. Because I was kind of like, oh, yeah, Tina Turner. That was a thing in the 80s. Yeah, whatever. This very transitory period where Tina Turner happened to have this little blip of a comeback. And also, she must have been filming Mad Max right around the same time this came out, right? Yeah, like right around the time this came out, I think that she got the role of an anti-entity in uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome Mm. because of the success of this and her comeback. Nobody was going to cast her in anything before this came out. Yeah, I'm just saying that must that helped definitely because that's kind of iconic, and her look and even on the cover of this record is is iconic. In addition to her look in the movie, that same interview I mentioned earlier. Uh, she talks about just like her love of like sci-fi music or sci-fi movies. And she actually talks about that movie, which was right after this album came out, being cast in that and wanting to do more like sci-fi films. Well, that didn't really work out for her all that much. But she did have a biopic made of her early music sure. biopic, 92, 93, What's Love Got to Do With It came out. Huge hit. I think both... Angela Bassett, who played Tina Turner, and Lawrence Fishburne, who played Ike Turner, both got nominated for Oscars for it. Hugely successful. It also led, and we, we touched on this last week uh, when we were announcing this album, that in 1997, 
she was named as the spokeswoman for like Hanes pantyhose. And they were trying to sell this 58 year old woman as a sex symbol. Like, oh, these legs that you can never forget from Tina Turner. And I'm like, she was born in fucking 1939. Are you kidding me? Like, I remember even as a kid being like, I don't understand why you're trying to put this on. Like, I was 16 years old at the time. It's like, I don't find her sexy. I'm sorry. She's a good musician, but like, no offense, 58-year-old Tina Turner. Well, they were, they were selling underwear to you. That's a good point. That's a good point. I certainly wasn't buying any pantyhose at the time. At the time. But she also, and this is one of those tidbits that I found out, was the first female and first black artist to ever appear on the cover of Rolling Stone. Hold on a second. Yes. I read that in two different places as well, but that is a very misleading I quote. know. I, that's why I brought it up. It's so greatly misleading. It's like a bunch of bullshit. No, it's not a bunch of bullshit. It was the second issue. This is the second <laughs> issue of Rolling Stone. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah okay. it's not a glass yeah, ceiling yeah. breaking thing. They were just like, oh, yeah, right. Tina Turner's pretty hot. We should put her on this. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's accurate, but it's totally out of context, and yet multiple articles mention that, and I was... Because I kind of knew when Rolling Stone started, I was like, wait a minute, let me look at the first 10 issues here. And by the way, Janis Joplin was like in the first five and I, I, Jimi Hendrix was in was like two of the first 10 also. Yeah, that's why I was like, wait, she beat Jimi Hendrix? There's no way that Jimi Hendrix wasn't. I was like, oh, okay. It's not like she was on in, 1990, in 1984 when they were like, Tina Turner's back or anything like that. Right, yeah. right. Let's start getting into some of the tracks on this album, Private Dancer. I know you all are very, very interested to hear our in no way snarky takes on these songs. We're going to throw it back to the biggest hit on this album, Tina Turner's only number one hit as a solo artist in her career. I think her only number one hit as even with the Ike and Tina Turner review, which is What's Love Got to Do With It? We're going to jump back into this for just a second. I had to go and look at like the vinyl to, to see if there was a question mark after what's love got to do with it. And there's not. It's a statement. <laughs> I, it's a statement, not a question. Right? <laughs> I thought it was I thought it'd be a question. It's not a question. It's a grooving song. You know, it's got that reggae vibe going to it. I read that the song was passed around a bunch. Like everyone that it was given to didn't want it until it got to Tina Turner and then she picked it up. Yeah, I heard Don- Donna Summer passed on it. Right, right, Donna Summer passed on it. Well, it's odd that it's, the subject matter sort of fits with her life story a yeah. little bit. Yeah, and that's why it's become her signature song. But I, I actually am not overly impressed by the tune as as it stands. It's definitely not one of my favorite tracks, even on this record. It was way more men at work than I remembered it being. Oh, totally. Like, with that, that weird, oh, yeah. like, yeah, that weird synthy thing thing going on the synth the synth harmonica yeah solo. synth harmonica right my note on this is who needs a harmonica when a harmonica can be programmed <laughs> <laughs> so many of these 80s tunes they put me right back into 80s films so i really felt like the first 10 seconds of this i could see axel foley like <laughs> snooping around the la warehouse district 
<laughs> oh, don't even conflate this with the Pointer Sisters who were doing way cooler shit. Than this no, no, that was in a much more exciting scene in Beverly Hills uh, Cop where he's uh, hanging off the back of the truck, as I recall. Yeah, of course. This this is more the snooping around, mm. uh, st- you know, exposition, okay. uh, tension building uh, music. What is a second hand emotion? Oh, well, so how, how is love? How is love a second or what is the second hand emotion? So I remember as a child hearing this song, I had, I had like family friends and I was friends with their kid and I would hang out there and they liked Tina Turner a lot and they would listen to this album a bunch. And I always thought it was a second handy motion, <laughs> like a motion that like an additional motion that would be useful, a second handy motion. I think, I think, you know, maybe obviously what it, what it means is it's using the term second hand to mean shit, like really crappy. But it, what's funny about that to me is I've never and secondhand clothes have become much more popular. I think since this album was released and trendy, and I've you know being poor most of my life, I've never thought of secondhand as be, being equated to bad. It just seems like a part of life. So to be fair, I have never been in a long term relationship where somebody beat the living shit out of me. It might turn me off a of love a little bit. I can see that maybe being again ironic that the subject matter speaks to her life in a in a way that uh, again i looked at this and i was like well she didn't write that song she doesn't have any writing credits on any of these songs i, I think that helped with the success of the song it, it must have yeah because people knew at that time what kind of what her life was like and what her you know absolutely so, so it, yeah my only other note on this is that the snare sound like right at the beginning of the song is just so painfully 80s and Rob, you talked about the slathering of 80s being to the detriment of this album in general. It's like it is first generation drum program snare sound number one. It is so fucking terrible. And that is a thing that has occurred with so many albums from the 80s where they're like, this is the newest technology. It's the newest of the new technology. And you're like, yeah, I get that. But you do realize that the old technology has been being perfected for like 30 years, and they got it pretty damn good. And so somebody has to go out there and be on the cutting edge of using the new technology, but a lot of times it's way worse than the older technology that has been perfected. Okay, here's the here's the paradox of all creatives, but certainly musicians, right, is a lot of times people, it's the people who embrace new technology the earliest that get a lot of the credit as innovators. Beatles are sure. a great example, right? Pink Floyd, another great example. Pink Floyd, another great example. So I understand where the urge comes from. However, my problem with a drum beat like this is they had, presumably in, in the same session or back-to-back sessions, there's other songs with a real drummer. And just the human ear sh- it can definitely distinguish, and it would be reasonable to say, you know what, I know... This new thing is technologically advanced, but this other thing sounds better, and that's the most important piece. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. And if if you watch uh, if you watch videos of her performing that song live during the time period, she has a rock band. I mean, it looks like King Crimson out there, just like long hair, you know, white guys, but but full rock band, full drum set, and it kind of makes her shine in a different way that you can't pick up just from the Well, absolutely. She still had that 70s pull. Like, all the guys that were, like, killer studio musicians in the 80s, 
they grew up on Ike and Tina Turner Review. Like, they were like, they probably worshipped her. And that's why she was able to get guys like Jeff yeah. fucking Beck to come in and record on this album but that nobody thought was going to be a hit. Right. But Jeff Beck's like, I fucking loved Tina Turner. I grew up watching Tina Turner put on these raucous live shows. I would love to play with her. Maybe, maybe that's what he, maybe, maybe that's what he thought. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, I was, I'm, I was thinking, we'll, we'll get to it. But maybe that's what he thought. Maybe that's what he didn't. Let's let's move on to the next song that we're going to talk about on our focus list. And I, I think that it is fair to tell everybody that there are so many different versions of this album. It's kind of ridiculous. And so depending on which album you are looking at, we may be going in order. It may be going out of order. There is a U.S. version of this album, original release. There is an international release of this album. There is a like 30th anniversary reissue of this album and they all have like wildly different songs and and song uh, track listings and so uh, they were just milking this for all that it was worth and apparently it was worth 12 million fucking units pulled so good for them but we're gonna go on to the next song that we have queued up here which is show some respect I'm coming in hot on this one. This is a jam. I felt like it was a bit like Jukebox Hero, where the lead singer is rocking you so hard that you think their head might explode. I totally had this as a fucking foreigner. Like, this is this has the foreigner feel. Also has the DuckTales feel. And I like both of those songs. Yes. The stings, yeah. the super high vocal. Tina, you know, I just, when I was listening to this one, I was like, embrace the cheese, dude. You can do it. You can do it. It's definitely got '80s training montage <laughs> vibes too. Yeah, it's kind. It's kind of got a. It's kind of got a whip it. A whip it vibe. Yeah, a little herky jerky to begin with, yeah. but it is lyrically empty. Yeah, I cannot argue with you on that sure. one. Sure, but honestly, her voice has a lot of character, and it does. Yeah. I can buy a voice with a lot of character delivering just completely empty lines. Much more so, like we talked about this with the. Um, the Nora Jones album recently where she's got this like pretty voice that is completely devoid of all character. And so unless you're delivering really good lines, that's just fluff. And I don't think of this as fluff. Oh yeah. That's, I wrote down Nora Jones comparison too, because I was thinking that, yeah, recently we said Nora was at like a one on the master volume knob and Tina has not only the master volume turned up to 10, but the gain knob turned up to 10. <laughs> and she's fucking... Wh- and she sounds good. She also sounds like she's been smoking for most of her life. I don't know if that's true or not, but she really has a lot of husk to her voice that I found to have add a lot of character. My note was, she suddenly sounds old. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there's a couple other songs on here where that's going to come up again just as suddenly. But uh, yeah, Rob, I agree. This song's kind of a banger. I, th- th- it's so cheese, but it's... It's, it's cheese that I like. Like again, I like cheese, yeah. and I it gives me that fist pumping vibe. What's that Journey song? Someday love will find you. 
break those. Yeah, I'm just like pumping my fist. She's gotta show some respect. Like it's fucking great. Does it make it a great album? I don't know, but I definitely enjoyed listening to this song. <laughs> yeah. I enjoyed this one. This yeah. one, it, it had a, it was going for something. Like it was definitely going for something, and I can appreciate it. For somebody like Tina Turner, I think the best that you can say is that she evokes what was an undeniably magnetic live performance because she is a fantastic performer. I don't know if you've watched Rob. I know you and I have watched some of those, uh, the Burt Sugarman midnight specials with Ike and Tina Turner, like some of those old DVDs that we see up in Grass Valley at that recording studio. And they put on a hell of a show. They have the dancers. They're all getting down. They're all coked to the gills and just throwing it all out there, flop, sweating, pushing the vocals. And this evoked a little bit of that for me. Let's move on to a song where we're going to take a little bit of a left turn off of the really magnetic live show performance. And we're going to go with the title track off of this album. Private dancer. All the men come in these places, and the men are all the same. You don't look at their faces, and you don't ask their name. I'm your private dancer, a dancer for money. I'll do what you want me to do. I'm your private dancer, a dancer for money. This is a song about being a stripper, written by a man, sung by a 44-year-old washed-up star. (laughs) How could this not be your title track? Listen, I went on a journey over the week with this song. When I first heard it, I hated it. I thought... I, the first thing I wrote down was, I'm a lazy writer, a writer for money. <laughs> I just thought it was so poorly constructed and, and boring. But I swear to you that about on listen number five, it started to get in there. And now I think this is the guilty pleasure of the album. I think this is a Windows rolled up kind of affair, but I am feeling it. I'm vibing it pretty hard. Really? Yes, I, I dig it. And then after all that, only, and I'll, so I'll clarify it because... You guys know that I'm a big Dire Straits fan. I didn't find out it was a Dire Straits song until after I had agreed in my head that I liked it. it makes perfect sense that Mark Knopfler wrote it. And in fact, it's a Dire Straits cast off where I think they even considered using the Dire Straits backing track and just adding Tina in. But they they scrapped that plan. And I but I, I think Dire Straits still plays on the record. Everyone but Mark Knopfler, maybe. But anyway, I, yes, I like it. It grew on me. I don't know what to tell you. It's cheese to the max. It's a torch song. I don't want to admit to people I like it, but I rocked it right before I came into this podcast in the car. Marty, I'm going to guess you hated this song. No, no, no. This is like the only song I liked. Oh. Uh, I think it has. It was the only song that has has like meaningful lyrics. I like that it's like over seven minutes long. <laughs> I had to get in the extended sax solo and the, and the guitar solo. I just felt like she got she got into it because I feel like a lot of these songs, when you're covering other people's songs, you have to like somehow figure out how to embody the lyrics to make them connect with the listener. And that's kind of a lot of what I was looking for for this album is like, can I connect to these songs? And that's how I listen to music now. You know, it's like I want to connect. I want to. I want to. I want to 
listen to the person sing the song. I want to connect to the lyrics. I want to hear the have the music connect to that, have it all work together. And this is the only song on the album that really did it for me. One thing I like about this is that I was looking at the the personnel who play in this, and the the sax player in this song is Mel Collins, who is the nastiest sax player on all the early King Crimson albums from the early 70s, whose like only job is to like not play any noticeable note and just like wail and play nonsense crazy jazz solos <laughs> on every song. And he kind of like keeps it cool oh he's very much it. in the pocket well and that's actually that's <laughs> oh, yeah, my yeah, big yeah. critique is that you know they have jeff beck playing guitar on the song and i feel like the jeff beck guitar solo does not fit with the song it also doesn't sound like a jeff beck solo i i had actually had i had to go back several times to be like where there's a solo in yeah. there i had to like cue around like oh there it is that's kind of yeah, not I, not I very agree, jeff yeah. beck well you but know? It's not very Jeff Beck. The song does not need a Jeff Beck solo. That's not what this sure, song is. Sure, sure. Well, I think they, they must have been thinking. So, to be clear, it's not a cover, right? I think the story is the Dire Straits recorded it for one of their records and then yeah, left it on the cutting room floor Correct. and never, never released it. And then Mark Knopfler, partially because Mark Knopfler was like, I think a woman should sing this. Good call, Mark. Good course. Yeah, yeah. Also, don't, I don't think don't Mark Knopfler, I don't think Mark Knopfler could have pulled off the octave jump maneuver, which is a really good maneuver f- for songs generally, but specifically for a melody like this that's kind of sort of flat and relentless. Right. You need that kind of drama in it. So the fact that Tina can go up high. But but anyway, I assume that because Mark didn't make the session, I think the rest of Dire Straits did, and you get real drums on this track and stuff, which is nice. That maybe is why they thought they needed to bring in a guitar solo. Mark Knopfler guitar solo probably would would have worked a lot better on this. Jeff Beck has it's the shit we were talking about with Tori Amos, where she can't sing backups because her fucking voice just cuts through so much that she has like lead singer voice and can't be buried. Mm. And Jeff Beck is just the kind of guitar player that just can't necessarily like fade into the background of a song. Yeah, that's true. It, whereas Mark Knopfler's a real like pocket guitar player. Oh yeah, if you will. oh yeah. He's so yeah. pocket. Come on, so Salton's a swing. Yeah. I've listened to that. I don't know why I've listened to that a million times this week randomly, but yeah, that 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 dude can deliver. But also, he's very flat. He couldn't sing the no. song. He's too. He's too. He's too like spoken word to sing this song. Yeah. Well, and it also would really get across the line where he says, "You don't think of them as human." that he's actually talking about sex workers when he writes that line. <laughs> I know it's from the standpoint of a, of a private dancer, a stripper, but Mark Knopfler writing sure. that line of you don't think of them as human, he's not talking about the customers. He's talking about the sex right. workers. I don't think of them as human. Right. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't hit. doesn't he, hit, right. you know. Well, I think the intention is debatable, but I get your point that depending, it's kind of referencing what Marty said, that depending on who's singing it, you take on the persona and you interpret the lyrics based on their voice, which is an interesting angle, definitely. Sure. There is definitely one lyric that is non-interpretable for no matter if a man or a woman was singing it, where they imply that you're going to use your credit card at a strip club. That's just a bad move. I don't, like, there's very few (laughs) established American Express. Yes. (laughs) Don't use your fucking Amex card at a strip club. Just throwing that one out there. I assumed it was a sponsor or something. (laughs) Maybe maybe that's how it works in Germany, because they mentioned Deutschmarks. Yes, exactly. They're very efficient over there. They might might swipe a card. I'm sure they'll swipe it, but what are they going to do with that information once they have it? That's the real question. (laughs) Let's go on to the song that launched this album. 
the one that got the ear of that record executive, John Carter, as he was apparently becoming the king of Mars or something. My internet research was a little bit scattered on this one. It is the song, Let's Stay Together. Let me be the one you come running to. fucking garbage by the way does anybody have a does anyone like this this is fucking garbage that synth solo oh the keyboard solo i'm just like what everything about that is terrible let's stay together as i mentioned in my tweet length review is kind of already been perfectly recorded why would you fuck with it agreed Agreed, but here's what I'll say. This was a roller coaster of emotion for me the, on the first. Oh, did episode. you think it was good or bad? No, no, no. <laughs> Happy or sad. Allow me to narrate my thoughts. So first, it comes on because I'm just like listening to this in the car, sight unseen. And first, I'm thinking, hmm, this is a weird choice. The song's already been pr- recorded perfectly, like no point. The song's cemented in people's brains, etc. Then 45 seconds in, when they hit like the congas. I'm starting to vibe it. A little Marvin Gaye vibe. A little bit of that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just for a couple seconds. Yeah. I'm like, all right, okay, maybe I'm starting to believe that this could work nice and sparse. Okay, maybe she's going to kill it. And then within 10 seconds, I'm ripped from my revelry. And the Uber 80s kick in. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to figure out why this song is so terrible. Because it is terrible. And those backups are a hate crime. And I don't understand why they highlight them so much. But... Because it has all of the elements of like a funky interpretation of the song. So going back and listening to the Al Green Let's Stay Together, it is the understatement that makes that song really work. Like things come in and come out and nothing is ever dominating except for his voice. And this song, it builds linearly and nothing ever comes out after it comes in. Once it's in, it's fucking in forever. And by the end of the song, you have like 40 fucking things in and they're all just like vying for everything. And it's so terrible and so overwrought. And, 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 how, and how a song makes you feel, the Al Green song makes you, it like tickles your heart and your like butthole simultaneously in like a very <laughs> lovely way. And 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 if if a cover can't do that for me, then I can't support it. You know? it listen, it's a bold choice. It really is a bold choice to to go for, as you say, a butthole tickler. And you're like, no, I can do that better. Like, what the fuck makes you think you can do that better? Right, exactly, Why do you think you can do exactly. that better? I could put together a list of like maybe seventy five songs that it's just like, don't touch these ever. There's no yeah. room to improve. And this fucking Al Green, let's say it together, is on that list of Agreed. no Agreed. room to improve. Just leave Hallelujah. it the fuck alone. Yeah. We've mocked artists in the past for attacking a cover of a previous hit and not adding or changing anything. And at least this is a complete failure. Don't get me wrong. But it is a spectacular <laughs> one. Like they 
they changed a lot and they were trying something. And so a little bit of credit there. Rob, I I disagree with you on that because I don't think that they actually changed all that much. I think that they were just like, what if we took every element and turned it up to 11 and made them in all the fucking time? And that's not actually really changing anything. If we want to talk about changing something, another abject failure, by the way, which we're not, we don't have to go in depth on it, but we're going to throw in her version of help right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, God. I was younger, so much younger than today. Never needed anybody help in any way. Now those days are gone. I'm not so selfish, you Now if I change my mind I've opened up the doors Help me if you can I'm feeling bad And I do My note on this one was that it's like they just read the lyrics of the song and never actually heard a version of the song and decided to make a new song out of it. They did something different. <laughs> That's what you should do. So I totally disagree with the faces I'm looking at. I think this is a great example of remaking a song. Does it beat the Beatles song? No, of course not. But you reinterpreted it. It sounds a little like Elton John's doing it. You flipped what was an upbeat number that was hiding a sad song into a sad song. Okay, you know, is that reinventing the wheel? Maybe not. But I thought you got some really cool things. The thing I liked in this version of Help was the backups. Especially, I'll call out, the backups in the choruses generally I think are really cool and add something cool to the arrangement. But specifically the little dropout that happens at 318 involving the backups. I thought it was fucking cool. Definitely not my favorite track on the record or anything, but in my mind, an example of a successful reinvention of a, of a popular song. I, I agree it was a reinvention. I don't agree it was successful. I did not enjoy it. I think Joe Cocker would be offended by this song because he is one yeah. of the few people that took a Beatles song and made it better. She didn't make it better, certainly. I'm not, I'm not arguing that. It's not better right, than the right, Beatles. Right. But I think compared, I see what she's trying to do. She's, you know, in, in both cases of the songs we just talked about, I think she's making some attempt to give them the proud Mary treatment or the with a little help from my friends treatment. And so we can argue about success or failure. I, Yeah, for me, this was just a success. Yeah, well, we are going to go on now. I would put this on a mix. You put help on a mix? I would put this on a mix. A mix of shitty covers? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that is actually a valid point. Um, I know Rob has an affinity for hate listening and putting together just like real <laughs> shit playlists to put in the car so we just talk shit on them as we're driving long distances. And so, yeah, I'd put that on one of my lists, yeah. We'll talk about another song that would go on a playlist of mine, and I will leave it up to you to determine which one it's going to be. It's the last song we're going to talk about. Steel Claw. Story of a steel claw. Just a television wonderland. Just one more. Fairy tale about a rich bitch lying by the swimming pool. Life is so cool. Easy living when you make the rules. Life's fun. 
I got I got four words for this okay. song. Bruce Springsteen meets Meatloaf. I'm laughing because I wrote Springsteen's song down as well. It's funny. I have a line on here, which is, I somehow had to make these two thoughts coexist in my mind and be harmonious. Number one, this is a Meatloaf song. And number two, I fucking love this song. I fucking love this song. This song is such a banger. Yeah, I thought it rocked too. So really rocks. I, I like it too. <laughs> alrighty, alrighty. <laughs> There's some decent meatloaf material out there, but this is yeah, Jeff Beck solo again, and a very appropriate and good Jeff Beck solo on this one. I got on this one. I feel like they told Jeff Beck to sound like a synthesizer when he was soloing. <laughs> He accomplished yeah, that. if there's anybody who can, it matches Tina Turner's ener- energy well for like a rock song. Hundred percent. This was the one that gave me live feel. Like I pictured her in the studio doing the like windmill run back and forth, and you know, like steel claw, cold law. Right, right. I have a playlist of like it's 516 songs at this point. It's called my kitchen sink playlist. It's just songs that I put on there that I'm like, I can listen to any one of these songs at any time and be okay with it. You've reached a level of like, I'm never going to be unhappy hearing this song. And I put this fucking song on a playlist, on that playlist. That if this comes up on a random like four-hour car ride where I throw on that kitchen sink playlist and Steel Steel Claw comes on, I'm going to be fucking happy about it. And I'm going to sing along as best I can because there's a lot of words in this song. But... I think it fucking rocks. I think it sounds really good. Sounds like we're in agreement. <laughs> All right. There we go. It's very rare. Yeah, yeah. That we get it. In agreement. Yeah. I'm Marty. I thought you were going to hate this song because it is, it's cheese. It's fucking uh, real no, cheese. No, 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 no. I think, I think I've kind of been the opposite of what you all thought I would uh. think with Steel Claw and Private Dancer, but the rest of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly, I like Show Some Respect a lot, too. I'm surprised you didn't like that one. Again, just got the DuckTales vibe. I love it. But <laughs> let's find out what we really, really, really think. We are going to get to the point in the podcast where we're going to vote on whether or not you really do need to hear this album before you die. Thank you for sticking with us. It's been over an hour of content here. And now you get to figure out whether or not you need to listen to this probably like 46 minute album with your time on this the fleeting existence on this earth so i am going to throw it over first to rob mostly to put marty in the pressure spot of whether or not he's going to say yes or no (laughs) listen as i've hopefully made clear i had low expectations coming into the week and they were I would say far exceeded. That said, this is absolutely not necessary to listen to in your lifetime. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It was fun, but you know, not all fun is necessary. Oh, fair point. Okay, Marty, what do you got? I have about 30 minutes of my day where I can listen to music between napping and working for a few hours and looking at TikTok. Sounds like a real tough life you got going on. So, <laughs> I know. But in that short amount of time that I have to listen to music, I don't have time for this. 
I, I, I'm going to go ahead and say, no, no, this is not worth listening to. Oh, man. Burn, guys. Real fucking burn. I thought we were going to get two for two on this one. You know, I come to this experiment with, yeah, you've heard the hits, but have you heard everything else? And I know that's a different, uh, you know, way to judge these albums than other people on this podcast have. But I look at it from the standpoint of, I assume you've heard Private Dancer. I assume you've heard What's Love Got to Do With It. Are there other songs on the album that make it worth your time to invest in it from beginning to end? Show Some Respect, really liked a lot. Um, Steel Claw, really liked a lot. Does that make it worth your time to listen to the entirety of this album? My answer is no on that as well. I I liked those two songs, but overall, I I don't feel like this really pointed in any musical directions that you need to explore. This isn't the beginning of a musical journey that you're going to go on. This is a last hurrah of an undeniably great aging rock star and good for fucking her. I don't need to have heard it in my life. It's a bit of a roller coaster there. To be clear, I had never heard the song Private Dancer. You'd never heard Private Dancer? Uh, uh, I also have not heard that song before this. Did you guys not have like weirdly trying to be hip parental friends when you were growing up i didn't have weird parents <laughs> my parents were super square but like i had a couple of friends that had parents that were like trying to still be hip and cool like you've heard that new tina turner song yeah, yeah. no no ne- never she's heard got it. legs all right there we go zero for three i i really thought that uh we were gonna get at least one vote i am sorry tina turner she's still alive by the way Lives in Switzerland, became a naturalized Swiss citizen relatively recently, had some health problems, had intestinal cancer, and then decided to treat it homeopathically, and then had Mm. to get like her kidneys and liver replaced because it didn't work out very well, which how the fuck do you still stay on the list for kidneys and a liver when you're like, well, I did nothing to actually make this better, but... No, I think the guy she married is like 18 years her junior, and he gave her a kidney. Oh, good for him. We have a couple of things left before we wrap out our podcast here. All righty. I'm going to throw it over to Rob with the mailbag. Yeah, thanks, Tom. I want to dip into the old mailbag. Thanks so much for sending us your complaints, praise, corrections. We're excited to read them all. Quick correction from me first. On the Beck Odelay episode, we mentioned Riza talking about a sample he had to clear two different times, something like 10 years apart for the song, Can It All Be So Simple Then? The one we were trying to think of was Gladys Knight and the Pips cover of The Way We Were. Oh, not the Wendy Renee. Tom had mentioned After Laughter Comes Tears, which is sampled on a different track on 36 Chambers called Tears. So he wasn't Mm -hmm. exactly wrong. We were just talking about different things. Rizza went back and used a different sample from the same Gladys Knight tune for his 2003 release, a day to God is a hundred years off of Birth of the Prince, or Birth of a Prince, rather. And that was 10 years after Enter the 36 Chambers came out. So just a little correction, just wanted to point that out. I'm sure the avid listeners noticed and are f- furiously scribbling their missives currently. But we have one uh, real piece of listener mail that I wanted to pass along. Uh, a complaint, dare I say. Amanda from Vermont writes, Dearest friends, I'm an avid listener and I'm often delighted, transported, and educated by your podcast's approach to and analysis of these 1001 culturally lauded albums. First of all, she's using a lot of vocabulary words, so I'm a little concerned about what's coming next. (laughs) 
For the first time since listening, I have to admit that a bit of perturbation crept into my experience on the Nora Jones episode. Can we please consider the fact that this human being does not present as a cash-grabbing monster who trumpeted her relation to Ravi Shankar to the world to garner profit? It's not Jones's fault that her father was famous or that he was an asshole or that other people tried to capitalize on her relation to him in order to make money. Jones actively removed herself from her father's celebrity, never took his name, remained incredibly private, as you mentioned. I think the most telling evidence that points to her desire to remain separate from him is that most of you blowhards, who are an unfortunate cross-section of the population at large, had no idea they were related until you were required to dig so as not to sound uninformed on your public broadcast. In short, I love you guys. I clearly have daddy issues, and I would love for you to tone down the blame game on Nora Jones. I, I have to make a, a statement to there. I, I actually don't feel like it wasn't my intention to come across the blaming Nora Jones as some cash grab or something like that. I was more saying that I think other people in the music industry yeah, yeah. were like, oh, we can. there's a hook here that we can totally. use. And she actively didn't use it. And I give her props for not for not using it. I still like her album, but like, yeah, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I, I think what happened was we called her a nepo baby, which is obviously a trendy term. And by the way, this this email is sent with love. There are a few loves at the end here, and she's she's a fan, even though she's calling us out, which we appreciate, by the way. So. Oh, absolutely, one hundred percent. Good job, Amanda. Great, great job. We, we called her a nepo baby, and we implied, you know, fairly strongly without evidence that she must have had some help from her famous parents in getting a record deal after playing some random gig in Greenwich Village or something. But I think what Tom's thinking about is that later we said they, she reunited with her estranged father after she went multi platinum, and that oh that was him being that a dick, was him being a dick, not yeah, her. Yeah, I agree. That, that was dick, our indication. So yeah, yeah, we hear what you're saying, but also the album was not great. Yeah, and you really nailed it that we are a bunch of blowhards and uh, can be uninformed. I, I can't fault you on that, but wasn't trying to call Nora Jones out to say that she was like doing some kind of cash grab. I was more saying other people were trying to use her for a cash grab. So <laughs> listen, listeners, if you want to rattle the cage of the patriarchy as on display and here in our blowhardy podcast, please write us. I'd just like to point out, if we're the fucking patriarchy, the patriarchy is in the sad state of affairs right now if we represent that. It's true. It's really, it's the last few generations have been rough and this is really where it's where it's come to but please write us whatever you're thinking complaint correction whatever it might be whatever thought you might have send us over an email to 1001 complaints at gmail.com we will take it into our hearts excellent thank you very much rob appreciate you all sticking with us until the very end of this podcast one last thing to do before we sign off and that is randomly select our album for next week i have the albinator in the corner it's been shimmying and bebopping all over the place getting down with a steel claw cold law all that good <laughs> shit let's roll it out and see if it can pull us out another surprise banger so without any further ado drum roll please next week we will be listening to Question, are we not men? Answer, we are Devo. <laughs> nice. By the band Devo. That's going to be a weird one. Not just because we're weird and also like Devo, but because that album's fucking weird. You know, I don't think I've ever heard this album. Really? I mean, I'm sure I've, I've heard some of the tracks, but I'm not familiar with it. I feel like this is one of those albums that I listened to at the behest, of, not even at the behest of James, is basically because... 
I wanted to be able to hang in a conversation with James when he got really into Devo. And so I listened to this album. And I remember being like, oh, that's cool. That's, de- that's definitely not for me. <laughs> but yeah, good good for you guys. Good for you. <laughs> Should be very, very interesting. Hopefully we'll be able to make it interesting. It helps when the album is very interesting to keep our conversations going in the in the right direction. Thank you all for listening to the very bitter end. Hope to be preaching at you again next week. Until then, for 1001 Album Complaints, I have been Tom. Ahoy hoy, I've been Marty. And I'm Rob. Boosh. (laughs) 